0: Computer programming, and you've um, right. and it seems like after your PhD, you did some uh, work that was more in the technical realm. Sure, now at McMaster, you're in the communication studies department. Or is well, it's, it's, it's a
1: department of communication studies and multimedia, okay? So it's a bipolar department. There's a lots of cross fertilization between the two sides of the department, mm-hmm. but I'm nominally on the multimedia side of the department. Okay. So, you know, there's an undergraduate multimedia program and really it's based about around um, production, um, perhaps critically informed production mm-hmm. in a range of different media types. Okay. So it, it is fairly technological.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I was curious because it's always, to me, seemed an interesting dichotomy between, uh, on the one hand, the... Social, sociological, or more social research, social st- studies research side of things, more scientific approach, and sort of the more technological approach, which is sort of what the music tech department here is very much focused on. And then there's production, yeah, which is a little bit more practice based, but also a little bit more sort of skill and trade focused. Yeah. Um. So you seem like on some level you're kind of well equipped to deal with any number of those.
1: Yeah, and I don't. You know, since you're asking about career path, I don't think that it was any one thing that set me up to to land in this kind of balanced position between these things. It was mm-hmm. different things that were going on at the same time. So, you know, I was I, my graduate study in composition was all at the University of Toronto, mostly working with Christos Hatzis, but with, with a few others as well. Um, and while I was doing that, I was also um, really involved with the Canadian electroacoustic community. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the Canadian electroacoustic community played a significant role in, in sort of getting me to engage more with electronic music, because years earlier when I had arrived at the University of Manitoba as an undergraduate in composition, following some previous degrees, um, there had been a, a sign on the wall saying, join the CEC and, and sign up for our email list. And this was 1998, and I can remember signing up for the email list. And at that time, that list was just a, a con- like constant discussion, people all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, and in- introduced me to all sorts of things that you know, I had, had really had not had the chance to experience mm-hmm. uh, until that point. And that was also at the same time, you know, the very end of the 90s, where um, in tandem with this massive expansion of the domestic internet, at least in privileged countries like Canada, um, you had the free and open source software movement so, there was this kind of perfect storm of of learning about the Canadian electroacoustic community um having access to free and open source sound software like C sound mm-hmm. and sort of deciding what I wanted to do with my musical career at the same time so you know even though um at first electronic music was not sort of a thematic element of my graduate study it quickly became quickly became so okay, yeah.
0: Do you find that it's in your practice right now? Your electroacoustic music is still sort of the the foremost, or like where where does it fit in terms of the, your interests?
1: Well, I guess that depends what you mean by electroacoustic music. So mm-hmm. you know, I've tended to hue to a definition of that that you'll often find in the Canadian electroacoustic community as sort of sound through loudspeakers, mm-hmm. which is a you know right. rather broad right. category. So you may be asking about things like acousmatic music or
0: something no, like that. No, I really that, that is art. kind of what I mean, just you know, yeah. as opposed to writing for uh, chamber chamber Oh, I see what you mean. Things. I see what you mean. What mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um
1: no, I haven't written a lot for plain chamber ensembles lately mm-hmm. and uh I mean, I wouldn't rule it out, but it doesn't seem to be something that organically presents itself. -hmm. As um, I think I I just get too busy with other things, and so the things that aren't the most Mm -hmm. exciting to me don't happen. And and, I don't know; I can be a bit cheeky about it sometimes. So the thing that um, I'm directly coming from, being here in Montreal, is the premiere um, of a piece that I call Sinfonia, um, which is my first symphony. You know, when you study composition, you're Mm -hmm. supposed to aspire one day to write symphonies. And uh, when I was younger, of course, I held off writing from a symphony, you know, in that same way that uh, mm-hmm. Brahms, I think, you know, didn't want to write his symphony because he was in the shadow of Beethoven and yeah. all that. It's like, because your first symphony has to be something serious. Yeah, if not, right, then it's yeah. over. you yeah. know. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's why I didn't do it now. And then I think later I didn't do it because I'd really gone, you know, completely down the electronic rabbit hole. And so there was just no time to pay attention to it. And, and now I've written the Sinfonia, but it's a piece for a solo live-coding performer, of um, a, a singer, um, a percussionist, at least that was the original conception, it's really become tied to the tabla now, mm-hmm. and, to, and to Sean's playing, Sean Madovetsky's playing, mm-hmm. um, and a laptop orchestra. And uh, these things don't have to be in the same space, because you can dial them in telematically, if you have to, um, and when we did it a couple of days ago in Birmingham, we did dial them in. Um, so I was on this. I was on site at the dome space, the University of Birmingham. Um, my friend and collaborator Kristen Mueller Heeslip was singing in York's Dispersion Laboratory in Toronto. Um, Sean Matavetsky was playing tabla just down the hall here in Kermit. Uh, and the Birmingham Electroacoustic Ensemble Research uh, Group, BEER, um, the Laptop Orchestra, they were embedded in the audience in the space um, in in Birmingham. And then we did this piece together, which has four movements, like a proper symphony should. uh, And in fact, it's literally based on um, uh, sort of borrowings from the Brahms symphony Um, What happens is there's this various types of musical material that I've sort of pulled out of the Brahms Fourth Symphony, and that plays in a hidden way, and then what the live coder does is creates transformations um, that take the material you can't hear and make it manifest to the audience in various ways. Um, But it's all kind of cheeky, and and even even in performance, I you know there was a few moments where i can't resist but make some jokes in the comments um, <laughs> at the expense of uh, the symphony yeah. all in good fun i hope
0: so uh, i guess i'm just going to let the conversation keep rolling because sure. right away there's a couple of interesting things about yeah. that um, so one of the things that is one of the key hallmarks of live coding is this idea of projecting code right and the idea that people can witness what's going on and there's some kind of expectation that you know, you may or may not be able to actually understand what's going on because there's syntax, but there's also comments, so you can have uh, informal, uh, you know, show like an informal thought, and the idea of jokes and sort of humor and uh, conversation, uh, it seems to be a really key part of it. So I'm interested in your symphonia, you are mentioning that there's elements of the Brahms symphony playing in the background, so that means that they're not actually being heard, they're just sort of like like a running in the background, and then you have to take an action to so that people can hear what's going on. When you were programming this, how much were you thinking about how do I make clear to what people who are watching what's happening? You know, what kind of an awareness of, like, trying to, you know, visualize the process or display the process yeah. is going on?
1: Yeah, so for, so sharing the screen is really important, I think, um, for exactly the reason that the 2004 uh, Top Lap Manifesto says, that obscurantism is dangerous. So show us your screens. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that that line in the manifesto was not just, uh, at least this is how I interpret it, it was not just giving a kind of helpful hint to an emerging live coding movement. I think it was actually responding to what people were seeing in lots of electronic music practices around the turn of the century. I think there was a lot of obscurantism of people sitting behind laptops in dimly lit rooms, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, what's going on in that situation? They could be a prop for all the audience knows, right? And I think people have addressed that maybe in different ways, and live coding is only one of them. Um, so anyway, um, suffice it to say, I think that's that's really important. And so when I do something like a Symphonia, I want the what I type as a live coding performer to be really strongly salient to the audience. So that means big fonts. That means not ever having to put too much code on the screen at the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'm happy with in the current uh, manifestation of the symphonia is that I can do the whole piece um, when we did it a couple of days ago, it was 36 minutes long. And at no point um, does the sort of active live coding code occupy more than a screen with a really, really big font. Mm-hmm. um so i think that the whole thing is kind of the the text of the whole thing is quite is quite legible of course the way that that is possible is because there's a lot of stuff that is hidden you mm-hmm. know making really conscious de- decisions about what to what to put on the surface for people and and what to hide um and one of the things that hi- is is hidden is the moment to moment state of these hidden patterns that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the way that the piece is organized overall is basically um, to highlight different kinds of live coding. So in the first movement, um, where the, the sort of famous theme of Brahms, the first movement of Brahms Fourth Symphony is fairly close to the surface, fairly audible, it, the, the, from a live coding perspective, it's, it's entirely about synthesis programming. So I've got a pattern that is basically triggering um, pitches at definite periods in time, and it's a pattern that is really kind of drawn from a modification of that first movement of Brahms' Fourth Symphony, um, and that all happens behind the scenes. And all I do as the live coding soul is to start from a blank screen and create a synthesizer, you know, and mm-hmm. the synthesizer has a name that you know has been predetermined to make it respond to those, to that hidden pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just do that one type of programming and, and try to take it as far as I can in that moment. Mm. Um, and I guess that points to something else that is really exciting to me about this kind of work, which is that um, it's a live coding composition, which, which may seem like an anachronism at first, and I suppose in some ways it is. Um, but what's exciting about it for me as a live coding performer is I can have this thing that has, in some sense, a predetermined musical structure, and yet because the structure sort of expects improvisation for example it expects you to live code a synthesizer from scratch Mm -hmm. um... in that first movement um... depending on what you're capable of in a given moment you will you will take it in different directions Um, and so i don't know that's kind of an interesting model there that that sort of balances determinism and predictability with improvisation and and virtuosity and and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when we did it a couple of days ago in Birmingham, it was the first time we'd all heard the piece all together because we'd sort of rehearsed it with different telematic partners at different components. But but I really had no idea, you know, what I was going to do um, in the course of developing the synthesizer in the course of the first movement. Um, and and actually, I I was able to. One of the things I was happy about is that in the in the hours before. The, the, that first performance, I um, was hanging around the the venue um, with Scott Wilson, who I did my doctorate with at U of T, and, and who I learned a lot from, continued to learn a lot from, and I, I asked him a super collider question, and he gave me the answer. and I was like, oh, that's cool, and I, and I used it in the performance. Two you know two hours later, you know I was like, okay, that 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 generator that I didn't know about. That's really useful for this. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that, and it influenced the course of what you know of the of the movement, mm-hmm. um, even from its restricted position within the definition of one, one synthesizer. So, first movement, all about synthesis programming, hidden melody. Second movement, um, hi- hidden harmonies that change, but everyone in the group uh, interprets the harmonies in different ways and with their own rhythms. Uh, third movement. Um, is uh, an exploration of that ultra-concrete programming style that I was talking about at the workshop a couple of days ago where, you, where myself and the members of the Laptop Orchestra embedded in the audience know a scale, a mode, that they're supposed to explore, and they have the idea of coming from the stratosphere, from the top of the spectrum down... You know, down to the bottom of the spectrum over some period of time, and that's it, that's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And we do it together and, and make music. That was really beautiful in the Birmingham space because uh, it's a dome, really, really tall dome, with multiple planes of speakers all the way up, and a, and a, a ring of tweeters mm-hmm. uh, at the top that you can address. So mm-hmm. if you do these things that sort of start in the stratosphere, they have this really, really uh, clear physical manifestation. That's mm-hmm. nice. A spatial manifestation in the space. And the final movement is a uh, passicalia, just like the final movement of the Brahms Symphony. Um, and, um, but it, one of the um, conceits of it is that the, uh, it's a passacaglia with a very fixed rhythm. So I can do all these tricks with delay lines uh, on the voice to build up a kind of big choral uh, climax to the piece.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in that one, I'm doing different. In that last movement, I do different types of live coding programming. But, uh, but basically, it's, it's grooves. Mm-hmm. You know, using using pattern programming to create um, um, beats. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you know, I think as you go, you were asking like, you know, I, I sort of went on that long description because you were asking about um, this hidden stuff and and what the audience sees. Um, I, I don't know that. Yeah, the audience doesn't see the hidden stuff, but I think that they do see and follow the layers that they hear Mm -hmm. anyway. Mm
0: -hmm. What's interesting in in that context, you're also performing with uh, acoustic musicians as well. Yeah. So when you're doing it telematically, are you streaming videos of the acoustic musicians performing? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, people yeah. can see there's a visual element to people who are actually performing acoustically right. as well as the screen of the, for the code. Yeah. Um, so but one of the things I always think about coding so this is a little bit more of a you know, stepping back a second, yeah. thinking how do we create when we create the tools that we're using to perform with, or create the tools we're using for our creative practice, the way the the form that the tools take really influences the way that the we can use them, the way that they influence us to perform. Right, so my sort of, you know, uh, my sort of like really simplest possible idea of this is if you're live coding, you create a function that is, you can call with one letter, you're more likely to call that function than a function that you have to call with 20 letters. Hmm. You know, just that act of, you know, being able to easily access uh, the name of a function or set the parameters, maybe that would affect how the course of the performance would, would, the form that the course of the performance would take. But then you step back from that and you say, "Well, how about when you're coding a live coding language, you're creating the language? How do you structure in such a way to try to make what's going on understandable to people who are watching it, as well as something that you, as a performer, can interact with?" Because there's two very different perspectives.
1: Right. Yeah. I. Um... Yeah. I mean, I think uh, both of those things are considerations you know, there's kind of two different dimensions there Mm -hmm. that you have to play with. Mm -hmm. Uh, I often um, will use somewhat long-ish names for things Mm -hmm. in the things that I prepare uh, in advance. And I think that does reflect a lot of desire for the code to be as, as theatrically salient as possible for the audience. Uh, I'm trying to think if I've done anything with the only things I tend to do with sort of the single letter names um, are just sort of temporary things, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, st- but that's kind of a mainstream programming thing in a way too, right? Like, you know, it's sort of it's sort of common mainstream programming wisdom to use single letter variables mm-hmm. only for things that are extremely temporary, extremely local, local in yeah. their scope, right? Um, so if you know if we make a pattern in Super Collider and we're playing with it for a while, maybe we call the pattern X because we know that in five minutes we're going to stop
2: mm-hmm.
1: playing that pattern and we're going to be on to something else. So X is just kind of a temporary play- placeholder. Mm-hmm. Um, but for other things, it's it's really fun to use descriptive names. Um, and actually, it's uh, maybe one thing I can say is that it's really fun and I think really uh, powerful to to use names not only to make the code comprehensible to the audience, but to make it meaningful to the audience. Mm -hmm. So, you you know, the names can be jokes. They can be, you know, or they can be deliberately mysterious or deliberately, you know, obfuscated Mm -hmm. or... Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they they also can be improvised since it, since in the end that they're they're arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you when you do this kind of play with the the names of variables or functions, the names of some other temporary construction in the code, um, you, you're you're accomplishing more than just telling the computer what to do. You're really calling attention to the way that. You know, code is always something that's meant for communicating with humans uh, as well. Um, And perhaps also you're exercising some um, originary um, capacity of human beings for naming things, you know, which has a kind of like theological or philosophical component to it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't quite remember all the details, but I remember reading some, some Walter Benjamin essays where he talks about um, you know the significance of the human act of naming things hmm. um, you know which if mm-hmm. if um, you know if you've ever named a child is something that you feel like you're, you're mm-hmm. picking this name out of nothing mm-hmm. and it's going to stay with this thing for some period of time and it's going to have this kind of like unpredictable influence on the fate um, you know of that being uh, over time, and it's just something that you do with kind of like absolute power, basically. Like maybe it's the only thing mm-hmm. that we do with absolute power,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, as human beings, is to name things. Um, and I think when, you know, code kind of gets at that, and, and code and performance especially,
0: you know, it's funny, I remember thinking about naming. it as an instrument designer. He's like, you know, naming instruments is kind of the same sure. thing. You create something, even a composition is the same way. Yeah. Right? You write a composition frequently, you don't necessarily have a name for it. at And then you have to name it, and it changes the entire perception of whatever it is that you name. Yeah. So this whole thing about you'll go to a concert where there'll be you know, ten pieces, and they're all named, obviously, programmatically, just like the, the date that they're written or something like that. Right. Because you so much less uh sort of a frame with which to view the work, which some people like, and some people yeah. just use the naming as, a, as another way of, of c- contextualizing what they're right. working on. So it's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually thinking about it a little bit more, it's one of the things
1: that's really distinctive about code work, and especially code work in performance, is that you're not just naming it once, mm-hmm. as with a composition, a sort of traditional composition. Mm-hmm. You're constantly engaged in this act of naming right mm-hmm. uh, naming things mm-hmm. um, and you know I suppose that's that's mm. it, it's also I think it's this is something I think about a lot that it's it's possible to to forget how strange code and software is and it's possible to forget how it hasn't even always been the way that computing has been organized you know like some of the earliest electrical computers. Were programmed in. If you were to watch someone doing it, you would think that they were doing modular synthesis, because the you know the, the the programming or what we would call the programming, you know the specification of the algorithm was done by put sticking a cable in a jack somewhere and connecting it to some other jack somewhere. It looks like modular synthesis, and in that circumstance, right, naming has a it seems to me like it has a a smaller role, um, but in you know. Sort of fast forwarding to the present time, like, you know, it's like, code has become this like constant activity of naming and recognizing names and because it's like
3: readability, I guess, right? Because that's what happened. That's why they, forward so that you could read it wasn't just a bunch of ones and zeros or whatever. So actually, inherent in the type of programming you're doing is the point to make it readable and understandable. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think the naming thing though too, and I think we've only just started to explore this. When someone when a live coding artist starts performing and they, and they make a funny name for a variable and then play with it or something like that, uh, it hints at a broader possibility too, uh, the possibility of sort of creating new and esoteric languages. Mm-hmm. And you know, live coding musical languages have always had a kind of flavor of that in them. Um, but there's so much more that could be done to create esoteric, unique, local, mm-hmm. locally meaningful mm-hmm. um, languages. Oh, I had a question.
3: So this is like no, we're just kind of jumping around. Yeah, it's fine. But um, because I use super collider a bit too, I've learned it, and I've totally blown up super collider and like <laughs> messed it up. So like you were saying, like Scott Wilson was talking to you backstage, and then you used that like yeah. right afterwards. I would be so scared that I was going to totally ruin everything and have to restart. You know, super collider. Like, is that something you practice, or is it? Are there ways to make it? Like, so well, I did, that it I, doesn't happen. I
1: did try it once okay (laughs) in about a minute
3: (laughs) right but is that part of the excitement too that seems like improvisation i mean at some point like you're always kind of nervous when you improvise but it's like if you've done it enough you kind of get rid of that fear you know and you're kind of more confident in yourself yeah
1: well i think the thing is that um it depends a little bit on the circumstances so like the example i was talking about in it's in that first movement of the symphonia and all i'm doing in that is redefining the synthesizer so it's like it's a very small circumscribed part of Mm -hmm. the the larger synthesis system and i i I don't think i can remember ever crashing super collider with a bad synthesis definition okay i'm sure it's possible (laughs) (laughs) you know we should set it as a challenge on the supercollider list. How easily can you make a synthesizer that will crash supercollider? And people yeah. will come back with 10 answers within the, within the hour. But I don't think I've ever accidentally done it. So I think that you know, the, what would ha- the worst that would happen would be I'd make a synthesizer that makes no sound, and the, you, the previous definitions of the synthesizer, you know, their envelopes would taper off, and if I didn't fix it in time, There'd maybe be a little breath in the music or something like that while I fixed it. And I'd be if I was really panicky about, oh oh dear, I went down the wrong path. <laughs> Let's back up. Um, you know, because I'm making lots of changes, uh, lots of small changes to the code and reevaluating continuously. All I would have to do would be to just undo what I had just done. Right, just go back. And and go back, you know? And so I think, you know, I instinctively have those strategies for sure. That said, I mean, I remember I actually did make a mistake um, with it in performance. Um, I'm sure at least a few people in the audience caught it. It didn't make any, you know, it didn't make any loud, nasty sounds or anything like that. But but I was working, I was doing this thing where in the first definition of the synthesizer, it starts out as just a kind of sine tone with a simple envelope, and then it gradually spreads... Um, around the speaker array that I had, and I was doing those mm-hmm. spreads randomly, um, and I, you know, I, the, w- I was um, managing the selection of random speakers, quote unquote, manually by specifying a range of indices from zero to n minus one, basically, mm-hmm. and I forgot. I was, I was kind of like, exp- as I was expanding, I was forgetting that. And I think if someone was really following what I was trying to do, they would have realized that I was forgetting to update this. And so it was staying compact in this certain part of the room instead mm-hmm. of spreading out. Mm-hmm. And then there was this moment where I went, oh, and sort of updated the index. And all of a sudden, everything kind of like, you know, filters out around the room.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: um, but I think if you weren't following it really closely, you, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't have known that something was up. And if you were following it closely, you probably would have known that something was up. Mm-hmm. Um, we have those kind of moments all the time in live coding, though, especially in the roulette, like where we're taking turn. You have a group and you're taking turns. Mm-hmm. There are these moments where you're like, I think I know what that person is doing, and I don't think they're doing it right. <laughs> right. And it creates this enormously interesting creative tension,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because as long as the, again, as long as the system doesn't blow up, the fact that the realization and the intention don't exactly match isn't really a liability it's actually kind of like an asset because Mm -hmm. then in a subsequent move in the game whether by a soloist or whether by another you know person in a group they have this enormous tension that they're responding to Mm -hmm. like you know it's like let's say it's a roulette and you're taking turns and you can see that someone was trying to do something and it didn't quite work so now you come in and you you're you're not just responding to the state of the code and you're not just responding to the state of the machine you're responding to this kind of like half fulfilled intention there you know mm-hmm. do you quote unquote fix it do you fix it in a way that takes it in another direction you know do you remove it there are all these there are all these decisions right it's like an open live forum that's what i think of it. it's like yeah.
3: oh i don't know how to make this work i thought it would work and you're like oh i know how to make it work right <laughs> you right yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah.
0: It's funny, that makes me think about, um, uh, well, on the one hand, you know, when you're performing, like for the example you gave, I mean, just based on sort of what my understanding of what you just said, you could imagine that maybe you intended to keep things really localized for a long time and yeah. then at a certain point you let it distribute. I can imagine when you when that happened it must have actually been quite a nice musical effect. Sure. Right? Which is so it becomes one of these tensions between intentionality and what actually happens. Yeah. So you're trying to second guess what people are trying to do. But then the other time stepping back from that, if you're thinking if you're in a chamber ensemble for example like an improvising chamber ensemble you know and you see somebody try to execute something and fail right and the idea that you could then go after, you could go back and you could fix that somehow or execute what they failed to do yeah. successfully and that I think there's a different political kind of sure. struggle there I think that might be even a little bit insulting or, or problematic whereas in the, the code world maybe it doesn't feel like that or you know you, maybe you see that you're just implementing it differently yeah and
1: and I think you know, you, when we, we started talking here, you were asking me about my feelings now as someone who was trained in composition about working with traditional ensembles. And, you know, and so I have, let me say, I have all of the greatest respect for, for the musicians of the world, as individual musicians. But I do actually find a lot of the ensemble situations that people are in stifling Mm -hmm. because of their emphasis on correctness. And I think that in the live coding context, you know, often there isn't that emphasis on correctness. And it's it's sort of paradoxical in a way, right? You have this machine that is literally validating your syntax and will sort of spit ugly error messages at you Mm. if you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe perhaps to compensate for that, there's been this often a very improvisatory aesthetic and an embrace of, you know a certain kind of unpredictability and an embrace of certainly an embrace of error and its productive effects um, on creativity. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm, I've arrived at a point where I'm really profoundly disinterested, in setting up situations where people can be right or wrong. And, you know, for me that creates a real problem with the sort of traditional composition situation of the score that gets faithfully executed by the performers. Mm-hmm. And so for the symphonia that we've been talking about, you know, one of the things I said to all the people I was working with is this is basically a set of ideas. If you want to do something different,
2: mm-hmm.
1: go ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we're making music together. There is no such thing as a correct rendition of this piece. Doesn't mean that it's completely improvised either. But there's no such thing as a correct rendition of this piece. It's a kind of framework for music making. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong or right mm-hmm. uh, about performing it. You know, there's no there's no special points.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, no special karmic points that come for doing this thing. Correctly, just like there are no special points that come for doing anything else um, correctly. As I get older, I'm more and more concerned about this thing about validation and and correction. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like, um, um, you know, maybe the 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 regime of checking that things are correct and that texts match is, you know, while obviously has a certain technical necessity within computing systems. Is maybe not the best thing for, uh, for human, human interests. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny. I mean, people usually can't see the score either. I mean, like the, the audience can't see the score. So what matters really is exactly. the music, sure. right? Yeah. In the end, and yeah. I guess that's what happens with coding too. You could be like, that's a really bad way to do that, but, well, it made a sound and it sounds interesting. It's kind of, I guess, in the same vein, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yeah, certainly. I've have some friends who, when they code. Like I'm always just shocked at sort of the way that they approach doing it, and they use, you know, values that are so orders of magnitude beyond what I would consider to be appropriate, and yet really cool things come out of it. Right. You know, so it's good to sort of not box yourself in by what you're supposed to do. Yeah, for sure. Um, I do think it's interesting this idea of composing and improvising, you know, and I. I frequently think of myself as composing for improvising you're composing to set up a scenario in which people can make music together and sure. of course the thing you really hope people do is live in the moment you know and really sort of respond in the way that feels it feels appropriate to them, whatever that means you know at that time, uh, but at the same time, there is an expectation that there are that they're going to follow certain gu- certain guidelines if not rules you know not, the thing I always come back to you and think about this issue is free improvisation, right? Free improvisation meaning, you know, originally, like, when people first started improvising in that sort of style, it was, felt like a liberation from this idea of imposed genre, imposed style, all that. But at the same time, at this, you know, relatively quickly, really, uh, it becomes a, um, people started to have a style, a free improvisation style, that you had to stay within. Right so how quickly we sort of try to create boundaries within which to perform and how challenging it can be sometimes to to get outside those or expand them. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just a constant process of keeping an open mind and really exploring, exploring and being aware of this tendency.
1: Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: it seems like it
1: takes um, it seems like the it, it takes some structure to be able to preserve Some freedom. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Well, Stravinsky's famous quote, right? Right. Um, Said the tyranny of absolute freedom. Sure. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I I think there's another angle on this too, and and I'm aware of this in proposing live coding compositions, which which I think really is seen as slightly anachronistic sometimes. Um, and I really came to it through the experience of directing a laptop orchestra that had people from really diverse backgrounds. Because in that specific setting, the live coding composition where you have, you know, really somewhat more structure, somewhat more prior expectation about what's going to happen than is normal in a lot of live coding contexts. Um, in that specific setting of the laptop orchestra where you're getting people who are mixed up with different ranges of experience, different backgrounds, some people who have maybe just joined the orchestra that week and others who've been in it for two or three years. Um, The live coding composition um, can be something that um, unifies the group and provides a kind of flow experience for everyone, you know, provides an experience of sort of sufficient but not excessive challenge Mm -hmm. for everyone because for the people who have just joined the composition gives them very clear targets of what they need to do Um, while for those who've been in the group for some time or have more experience, perhaps the composition is, is specified in such a way that they're free to you know, add detail and nuance to it. Um, you know, I did a bunch of these over the years for laptop orchestras, and I think probably the one that um, typified this kind of idea the most was a piece actually done with Sean Matavetsky called Five Functions that's on the Cybernetic Orchestra's second album. And uh, it was um, created in Chuck, and the, what, what is provided to the members of the orchestra is just a single Chuck file and what the chuck file contains is a bunch of functions. And what each of the functions do is just make a note with a kind of predefined um, you know, synthesizer graph of some sort, predefined timbre. Um, and then it also contains some instructions in the comments about the form of the piece. and And you can play the piece just by uncommenting some calls to those functions at the top. And and changing a few of the parameters in accordance with the instructions. So you know this is what I call the ultra concrete style, right? Mm -hmm. It's very easy to get into that. Mm -hmm. Like as long as you can type and follow instructions, you know, and react a bit to what's going on around you, Mm -hmm. you can do that part of it. Mm -hmm. But then the instructions also say that you're free to redefine these functions, you know, within the limits of your inclination and ability. And, and my experience has been that when you work with a laptop orchestra with that, that they do that. That, you know, the people who, who want more, who want to do more, they go in and they change that. And they make the instrument their own in a way that responds to what they already heard from the default, but which, you know, adds some personal twist to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that when you get a bunch of people doing this all together in a room, you know, and they're spatially distributed... You get this kind of like extra heterophony. It's not just the heterophony of people doing things at slightly different times with slightly different parameters, but also with you know their own synthesis ideas sort of added on top of it, but it's still recognizable as the um, as the piece in some level. so um, you know I, I intend to do more of those, I guess. and this you know the symphony that I'm just doing, which is not really a laptop orchestra piece but has a laptop orchestra as part of it. That has you know taken those ideas further still, and I guess it's, and I guess it's the first time that I've applied that idea to myself as a live coding soloist too, creating a piece where there's a system that kind of provides some structure that it fires at me, mm-hmm. and that I have to kind of work within, um, but where I don't have the responsibility to, you know, provide absolutely everything, you know, which which can get overwhelming. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's nice to take it easy sometimes, too. That's the thing.
0: That's one of the things I like about performing way. in ensembles. Yeah. Is you don't have that pressure sure. writing all the material. Right. Yeah. 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 So another way of taking and removing that pressure is to automate systems. Right. So you know playing along with the band in the box, for example, yeah. is a terrible example. Uh-huh. The one possible way of doing that. Or playing with al- algorithmic systems. Yeah. Um, which kind of leads me into thinking about, you talk a lot about patterns, and you also talk a lot... I've mentioned a couple times this idea of an ultra-concrete approach to performing. Yeah. So how different is... I the ultra-concrete, from sort of my understanding we're talking about, it seems like you're thinking about going in there and changing sort of one event at a time manually, right? So that's almost sure. more of a traditional performance, music performance yeah. mode, where you're responsible for everything happening in real time as opposed to creating patterns where essentially you're creating algorithms that sort of per- per- persist over time. Yeah. Right? Um it just, does that sound like a fair characterization? Of? Sure, yeah. I mean, with the caveat that I think that the
1: ultra-concrete style can become sort of liminally algorithmic
2: mm-hmm. because
1: you can, you, can st- you, can, you can do it in a way where you're triggering a single event, mm-hmm. but you can also do it in a way where you're triggering some very small, very local cluster of events. Mm-hmm. You know, you're doing some kind of harmonic arithmetic or, mm-hmm. or what have you. Mm-hmm. So it's just on the edge of being right. an algorithm.
0: Yeah. And it's funny, because I actually remember back yesterday when you gave her your presentation on the Kermit, you mentioned that when you are changing parameters in a pattern, for example, you get this issue of, you change the parameter, you execute the function, when do you really want it to change? And this idea of there being an old versus a new function of the same function, and yeah. sort of keeping an awareness of a musical structure and embedding that within the system. Yeah. Um, which is certainly something that you don't... Um, you don't always see in in algorithmic music at all, first of all, right? And it uh, was okay. kind of an interesting was an interesting point for me.
3: Well, it's just the way I think that uh, maybe Super Collider, that when they built those functionalities into it, they thought about it, like the quantization thing, like the beat thing. Like I remember when I learned about that, I was like, oh, wow, this is great. So you can actually do like, you know, because I learned Super Collider it was just all this like no rhythm just kind of amorphous stuff and then i was like oh you can actually do like dj stuff with this right and maybe i would do music more because that it afforded you know it let me do that yeah so i guess it depends on the system Mm -hmm. maybe you're using two you know
1: doesn't make you just speaking about the the beat capacities of super collider Mm -hmm. um makes me think of this awesome mexican super collider group mico rex They've released an album, and they've got a second album coming out soon. And uh, I think most, if not all, of the sound is managed through Super Collider, produced through Super Collider. And they sing as well. Um, They have lyrics and all this. And uh, in live performance, they do these really amazing live shows where they've got um, these homemade controllers Mm -hmm. hooked up to Super Collider. And they're basically game controllers, joysticks and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But they've Mm -hmm. taken them out of their original packaging and just repackage them in cardboard boxes and stuff like that mm-hmm. which apparently makes it easy to travel and easy to replace things if they get broken too, they just stick the electronics in a new box, mm-hmm. cut cut a new hole, hook it up to Super Collider. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's something I recommend to everyone because Miko Rex are amazing.
0: And so then they're taking the controls from the joystick to the gaming controllers and assigning them to create functions in Super Collider or just Yeah, like yeah,
1: and, they, and, and also they're doing triggers and things like that for when sections of songs should move on mm-hmm. and yeah.
0: It's funny because that's in a way that's... So one of the things about SuperCollider and live coding languages in general, right, is I think this idea that on some level you're accessing relatively low level parameters, right? And you're not creating a user interface that has limits. You know, the user interface theoretically doesn't have a bound, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but of course, if you're gonna map a controller to it, especially something like a joystick controller or a set of buttons, you have to create bounds for what those things uh, can execute. That's always seemed like a really big difference for for live coding. Not that live coding doesn't have bounds already because you're working with a pre-configured group of algorithms that are behind the scenes. But at the same time, one of the aesthetics seems to be to try to overload things or make it so you can have real flexibility in terms of the way you pass parameters and the way you embed things in the code. Yeah. Yeah, it can be about that.
1: I don't know. I mean, I think that... uh there's a kind of multidimensional space that we're talking about here Mm -hmm. where there's possibilities you know one range of possibilities is around um, communicating textually with the audience and another range of possibilities is around um using the code as a way to constantly be able to step outside of the box right Mm -hmm. um and sort of specify structures at new, higher, or lower levels of abstraction. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is an independent dimension or not, but it's definitely worthy of mention. There's also the idea of using the code not as a way to specify structures at arbitrary levels of abstraction, but as a way to explore a certain search space Right? the idea of live coding as as um, something that facilitates not the production of results beyond a particular range but the exploration of results within a certain range in a you know within a new way mm-hmm. and yeah i mean i think for me and a lot of people that's pretty fundamental that part is also pretty fundamental to live coding okay the fact that when you do it you are exploring mm-hmm what is possible, mm-hmm. whether within or without some standardized range mm-hmm. um, and maybe being surprised sometimes. Um, when Sean and I, as a very long cat, when we performed at the International Conference on Live Coding in Leeds this past summer, the first International Conference on Live Coding, mm-hmm. by the way the second International Conference on Live Coding will take place in, here in Canada. McMaster, in uh, October oh, okay. uh, 2016, April 4th deadline
2: mm-hmm.
1: for okay. our performance and paper proposals. Um, when we were performing at the ICLC in Leeds last summer, um, the, uh, there was, a, I thought, a really nice thing that happened at the end of our performance, which was that I made a mistake um, with some what I'll call unprotected code. So, you know, what I mean by protected is that it's sometimes nice to make your synthesizers in such a way that if you give them a value that's beyond a safe range Mm -hmm. things don't blow up well apparently I hadn't done that (laughs) with some of these synths Um, and I I gave uh, a really really high MIDI note number to a, a synth that we're using in performance by mistake. So it gets translated into some blistering frequency, and we hear this melody just go whoosh, you know, <laughs> up to this like, you know, really like burning high frequency. And I realize my mistake and I take it down. And then instinctively I do the, the classic jazz thing of repeating a mistake. Like, the only way of covering for this is to do it again. Mm -hmm. So I go up to another frequency, and and I pick a different one. Because, hey, variety is great, right? So, Mm -hmm. up it goes again, you know? And a third (laughs) time. And a fourth time. But on the fourth time, I pick a fourth different frequency, and everything goes quiet. Like, I do something that just, like, Mm -hmm. you know? Whoops. I do something that just, like... You know, shuts everything down, mm-hmm. um, and that becomes like the trigger for the end of the piece. So then you get this kind of thud or th- or thump as things shut down. So it's a total glitch, and it's like a a mistake on top of a mistake. Right. Uh, um, and I still don't really know what happened, but um, but that it, that mistake or that mistake on top of the mistake, I think it ended up being a really nice musical moment that came at the right time. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mistakes like a, are great in live coding. Mm-hmm. Mistakes yeah. are great. Mistakes are great, and I've I've really uh, stopped um, worrying about them. If I if I have something that is not evaluating a performance, I won't hesitate to just expand the post window and quickly peer through the code to figure out what I'm doing. You know that was wrong, mm-hmm. and I think that 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 embracing those mistakes, including like just basic syntax mistakes where things don't don't compile or don't get interpreted um, it, it is actually one of the other powerful things about live coding in terms of computational literacy, in terms of encouraging people to be engaged with code. Because when you do that, when you make a mistake in public and you know everything is still okay um, and you, you show people that you're making mistakes and that it's normal, I think that you're also showing people who are less experienced with these things mm-hmm. that that's normal. And it's okay, you know, that hacking, working with computers, programming doesn't have to be this kind of Olympic sport that, you know, is only reserved for, you know, the neo style um, hackers who can see, you know, see directly into the matrix. <laughs> right, you know, those people don't exist, actually. Um, what does exist is sort of real people that experience cognitive loads. And, uh, you know, experience moments of clarity and probably many more moments of confusion, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> confusion of panic. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's important just to, to put that on stage. And, uh, you know...
3: And I think that's a good point. I think, like... I just thought about this. Like, when you're actually coding, you're getting you're getting to see how people are thinking, right? You're typing out code, and you're like, oh, I think he's trying to do this. Or, but no sounds have been made. Nothing has changed. I mean, where else can you get that? Right. You can't do that in music, say, oh, he's going to wait to do this. But you can see that happening in live code. Like, oh, he just made this function, but he didn't use it yet. Yeah. Oh, let's see when he uses that function. You know what I mean? You have all these setups and all these things that can right. happen, I guess, too. Yeah. So... I think that's interesting too. So you can learn from people, in the same light. Be like, oh, yep. that's a, it's a cool way he wrote that function. It's right. a cool way he did that. Yeah. Without making sound ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember when we first, um, we first made the extramural software for live coding collaboration on the internet, and, and the the way it came about was that we had gotten this grant to do networked live coding, and so we were officially on this project and we had gotten this performance accepted somewhere and we were trying out different ways of doing it and it was getting closer and closer and closer and closer to the accepted performance. And so I hacked together this thing, you know, in a day basically, um, using some libraries that were already out there that would let us do it on the web and then pipe the code into whatever rendering agent we chose. And so um, one of the first times using it was a couple years ago now, Um, we were going to use it with Tidal for this first performance. And so we had this rehearsal where it was just myself and Alex McLean, the creator of Tidal. And we were, you know, at first we were testing, making sure that the software was working, and then we were jamming a little bit. And I hadn't really used Tidal very much at that point. I mean, we'd said we were going to do the performance in Tidal, but, you know, I hadn't really hadn't really done it yet that was all kind of in theory and now this performance is coming up and now I was playing with Alex through this extramural interface and you know like I learned more in that half an hour that half hour of rehearsal you know than I had learned in many other contexts to that point about title Mm -hmm. just by playing with someone who was an expert seeing their code right next to mine and being able to kind of not copy the code, actually, because anyone who's ever, as anyone who's ever sort of taught programming can tell you, copying code is disastrous, both for learning and for um, functionality. Right, because it tends to expose interfaces that are unpredictable on some level. Right, um, you know what you get when you code alongside someone in a collaborative interface is really that kind of like physical sense, you know, surrogate physical sense you know of the of the the act of programming because mm-hmm. you're not just seeing the code you're seeing the code as it develops
3: mm-hmm.
1: right mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. um it's just so it seems like there's so many parallels between music and, and coding too i mean yeah. people think about it as different things too but i mean as you're learning from i don't know like learning top or learning percussion or anything i percussionist, a I mean, you can watch them, you can try to copy them, but if you're, I mean, you can't take their hand off, you know, and do it, you have to try to figure out yourself. Like, it's in the same way with coding. It's like, okay, well, I'll try to do this myself and see
1: how far I can get without
3: directly copying it, you know?
1: Yeah, one one of my conceits that I'm sort of hoping one day to be able to investigate more closely is actually the idea that music and code, like algorithmic programming are more fundamentally related than, than may seem at first blush. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of things like the fact that, you know, um, when Ada Lovelace writes some of the first things that are written about the possibilities of programming in the 19th century, she specifically talks about music, you know, the possibility of making programs to make music. In the 1950s, when some of the first big public electrical computers were unveiled to the public. Um, Often the first demonstrations were of them sort of bleeping out sounds of some sort that had been, you know, um, algorithmically generated. Um, And there's this connection between what modular synthesis looks like to us now and the way that some of the other early electrical computers were programmed. Mm -hmm. I think music has actually been really for a long, long time, it's been kind of like secretly bound up um, with algorithmic culture, patterns, code, and that our present time is maybe just a time where, where this relationship is becoming less secret and is becoming more something that's celebrated in the open. Yeah. Great. Well, it's, it's 11, so I guess we could
3: wrap up. So sure. We can yeah. Well, here. thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. yeah, thanks for talking. It was yeah. fun. Pretty interesting. <laughs>